more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Wow, huh? It's pretty high praise, but not surprising. This is the book of Romans. Now, we're actually on the last sermon in the last chapter and a half of the book of Romans. It's taken us two years, um, but we're finally here, so victory. Uh, I didn't even try to attempt teaching Romans until my 10th year out of Bible college two years ago. So just to show you how meaty it is and how heavy it is, we only started it in my 10th year, but now two years on, we've actually finished. So hooray if you've been with us the last couple of years, and if you want to catch up on sermons, they're available online. But this last sermon is a little bit like, I think, the final debrief after an important project. So if you've ever, say, for example, worked on a big project with a team, or maybe if you've gone on a, a short-term mission, and there's always a debrief at the end, right? It's a bit of a let's look back, let's recap, and let's think, what's our final takeaway? How has this changed us? And we're going to do that today. We're going to look through the lens of Paul himself, because this is kind of a personal chapter and a half. We're going to look at his unique ministry, and we're going to look at how he would want us to leave today at the end of his monumental letter. So that's what we're going to do today. A bit of a recap, but also how would Paul want us to be changed by what he's written? So let's pray and let's ask ultimately that God, the ultimate author, would speak to us. Father, we thank you for writing through the Apostle Paul, by your Holy Spirit, these words. As we collect all that we've learned through the 16 chapters of Romans, help us see Paul not so much in and of himself, but as he is a servant of Jesus. And help us take away from today and take away from the letter of Romans what you would have us hear and learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to start from verse 14, which uh, we've just read earlier. And we're going to go all the way. We didn't read the whole of, we didn't read chapter 16 at all, but we're going to go away, go all the way to the end of 16. Now, you can see already at the beginning of verse 14, it's transitioning, isn't it? Paul is actually concluding. So let me, uh, let's read those verses again. Have your Bibles open, 15, 14. I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written you quite boldly on some point to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified, that word means to be made holy, by the Holy Spirit. All right, the first thing we're going to do is look at Paul and his unique calling. So points on your outlines on the inside, point, point number one. We're going to look at his unique calling, his unique ministry. I mean, there's, we're going to learn lots that we can learn from him and model after him. That's sort of point number two. But I think the first thing we've got to do is actually see uh, what is unique about him before we think about how we model ourselves after him. Because the unique things about him are these, that he is an apostle to the Gentiles and a priest. So he's got an apostolic and priestly mission to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's what Gentile means. And that is very unique. So firstly, apostles, apostle. Now there are some churches and some movements today that kind of like to stick the label or the gift of apostle on any kind of really great leader. Now my personal view is, and I think it's probably because of the Bible, I, I think that's unhelpful. Because in the New Testament, the capital A apostles were actually very unique. And they're no longer around. All right? Apostle is related to, the word apostle is related to the word send. 
So an apostle is someone that's especially been personally sent and commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself. And you see that very narrow um, criteria, criteria that's kind of spelt out in Acts chapter 1. Remember, um, Judas betrays Jesus, so you have the 12, but then now they've one short, but they needed to complete 12 because of the symbolic nature of 12. So when they chose the person to replace Judas, it was very important that this person had to have been a witness to Jesus, his whole life, his ministry, and to have been sent by Jesus. Right? So this is a very narrow category. You have to have been around when Jesus was around. Witness personally, right? Not just Jesus in your heart, actually walked and talked with Jesus to be an apostle, which is why they're no longer around. Now that makes sense for the 12, right? The 12 minus Judas plus Matthias. But you might be thinking, well, what about Paul? He kind of came late to the game. Why is he an apostle? Well, Paul actually says, yeah, that's true. I, don't, I didn't kind of follow the conventional routes. He calls himself um, an apostle, but like one abnormally born. He's like the third wheel. He's the plus one. Now, the reason why Paul qualifies in that narrow criteria is because he also met Jesus. Difference is, he met Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, he's on the road to Damascus, about to persecute some Christians. Jesus, the risen Jesus, not just a ghost, not just a vision, but Jesus appeared to him. Right? He w- talked to Jesus, and Jesus sent him, commissioned him. Right? And so he's an apostle. And for us non-Jewish Christians, that's all of us, in some sense, he is the most important one. So I want to say apostles were very special, very unique in their role and their place in God's history of dealing with people, or what we call salvation history. And so you see in verse 19 there, Paul talks about his ministry as being done with signs and wonders. You, you, yeah, you read that? Signs and wonders, by the power of signs and wonders. Now, again, some churches and some movements like to use signs and wonders to refer to any miracles that God does through His people even today, especially the miracles of healing. But you know what? In the Bible, that's actually a very narrow, a much more narrow phrase. Signs and wonders are reserved for actually key turning points in salvation history. You got that? In the Bible, signs and wonders as a description, it's not just any miracles, but key turning points in God's dealings with humanity in salvation. So the Exodus, God bringing His people out, Uh, Through Moses, signs and wonders is used. The works of the Messiah Jesus and His apostles, signs and wonders. It's quite a narrow kind of description. Now, I do believe in miracles, and I do believe that miracles exist today, even really amazing, powerful ones. I think, though, again, like apostles, it's more helpful for terms that the Bible uses more narrowly for us to use it more narrowly as well. So I think signs and wonders, we actually want to see as something kind of unique. Now, when Paul says, I've been able through the power of signs and wonders, to, it's actually showing that he is at a key turning point in God's salvation history. Because for Jesus' apostles, it shows that they're genuinely sent by Jesus because they continue on in his signs and wonders ministry. It authenticates them as his special apostles. And it shows their role is really at the turning point of the ages, the turning point of history, Right? So not true that every spectacular mir- miracle worker since then can use the terms signs and wonders. And even the really spectacular miracle workers today probably wouldn't say that at all that they're in the same kind of category as the apostles. They don't, you know, history doesn't turn on what they do in the same sense that it turns on what Paul does. 
So that's the first thing. Paul was unique in that he was an apostle. His commission sent by the risen Jesus at a key turning point in salvation history. And again, for us who are non-Jewish, Gentile Christians, he, even more so than the twelve, occupies the key role, doesn't he? Because, next point, of his role in relation to us, to Gentiles. So have a look at verse 18 again. Chapter 15, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. Right? When Jesus, the risen Jesus, confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him, it was very clear he was to be an apostle to non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Now, we saw in the video how that played out, didn't it? Right? Paul not only pioneered mission work amongst Gentiles, but the way he did it as a church planter and pastor, he actually set up future generations of Gentile missions. When people study where Paul went and where he planted churches, it was actually very strategic. So verse 19, he talks about the scope of his ministry, doesn't he? From Jerusalem, the first church, all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum is kind of west, um, just kind of past Greece. So I don't have a map, but if you imagine the Mediterranean, it's just past Greece. And in a circle, that's kind of his ministry up to that point. And he planted churches in key areas, in key cities. And he does it so strategically that he can say, I have fully proclaimed the gospel. Now, he doesn't mean that he himself has preached to every single person. Because there were a lot of towns that he didn't visit, a lot of regions that he didn't plant churches. But the point is, he planted churches in key places. It's like Aldi, right? When Aldi wants to expand to be a multinational, you know, better than everyone else supermarket, which I believe it is, um, then it's, th- it's going to think about a strategy. It's not going to like be in every town all at once. It's going to think about the key cities. When it started in Australia, it's going to keep thinking about key places before it then expands from there. And, and Paul was like that. If you study mission history, the cities he chose um, and to plant churches had a multiplying effect, so much so that he can say he's fully proclaimed the gospel. And this is, by the way, by the time he wrote this, he wasn't even at the end of his ministry yet. Right, as we will see, Paul, uh, later on I'll tell you, Paul will actually eventually get to Rome. Right, that's past the Lyricum. And possibly even make it all the way to Spain, the edge of the empire. But we'll come back to that later on. But so you see, Paul has uniquely been given the task of reaching Gentiles. And he's done that really, really strategically and well. But you see, it's not just that Paul's saying, well, you know, you 12, you've got the Jews, I've got the Gentiles. And now it's a bit of a competition. Let's see if I can, you know, start more Aldi stores than you guys can. Um, it's not like that. Because one of his concerns, and you've seen this through the Romans, isn't it? is that he wants Gentiles to be unified in fellowship to Jews. Right? So much of Romans, so by way, me, way of recap, Romans um, 9, 10, 11, Romans 13, 14, those latter chapters that we've looked at this year, is actually somewhat about healing the division of Jews and Gentiles. Why is it that he's gone to Gentile churches to get a collection for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? It's, it's part of that strategy, trying to show the Jewish Christians that the Gentile brothers and sisters also care about them, right? So much of his ministry is about uniting them. Last of all, though, Paul, you'll notice, uses priestly language to describe what he's doing. Did you notice that when we read it before? Verse 15, he says, the grace God gave me, verse 16, to be a minister. Now, that word for minister, there is a unique minister word. 
It's not the word usually used for minister, right? This is the, the person who ministers at the temple, all right? So it's a special minister word, to be a minister, a temple minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The whole thing is using very um, familiar for Jews, especially priestly language. It's temple service, it's offering. Now we know that in the New Testament, because Jesus came as the great high priest and he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, that as far as Christians are concerned, in the kingdom of God now, there are no unique priests, just like there is no temple. In fact, the New Testament says, if you're a Christian, that's all of us, we're all priests. We all serve the living God. And we all have access to God as priests. And there are no more animal sacrifices because Jesus has now come. And so what we offer are not animal sacrifices, but you remember Romans 12, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. All right? Because we're all priests. And so Paul is using priestly language, but it's very appropriate because even though he doesn't come, he's a Jew, but he doesn't come from the priestly tribe. In the Old Testament, you, you only could be priest if you came from one particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. Paul wasn't a Levite. But it's perfectly for, appropriate for him to be able to use priestly language to describe what he is doing and what he hopes to do. Because this is the way he sees it. Jesus has given him a commission a very definite, clear commission to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he sees his commission and carrying out his task in the most sacred and privileged terms. He sees that he's like a priest serving God in the Old Testament. I'm going to do this with care. I'm going to do this with reverence. I'm going to do this with all of my efforts, just as priests were supposed to. And the fruit of his commission, the fruit of his work are Gentiles, non-Christians, coming, non-Jewish people coming to know Jesus. And so he uses the language of offering, right? not literally offering, but what he does, what he pours his life into, he offers it back to God because he wants to please God with it. Now at this point, we actually want to say there is something in common between Paul and us. Because as I said before, the New Testament's view is we're all priests. Paul is no more of a priest or no less of a priest than you and I if you're a Christian. And so I want to ask you, do you take all of your callings from God, all the things that he calls you to do, do you take that as seriously as Paul does? Because we are all priests who serve God 24-7, not around a literal temple, but we all serve God directly by the Spirit because we ourselves are the temple. We are living sacrifices. Our everyday works of faithfully serving God and others, right? They may not be exactly like or nothing like Paul's unique calling, but I wonder if we also see them as sacred and we do them with our utmost effort, with all of our hearts and all of our reference, uh, reverence because we want to please God and we want to offer Him what's best. Do you see all that you do? Even the nine-to-five job that you have? Do you see the raising of your children? Do you see the living out of life in the neighborhood, the ministries you serve at church, your role as a son or a daughter? Do you see them in terms of the reverence, right, and the seriousness of priests serving God to please Him? I wonder if we do that. I'm going to turn now 
to point number two, right? Unique calling, but really when we come out of it is, okay, what, what does this leave us with, right? Point number two. And the first question I want to ask is, what would Paul want us to leave with, right? We are the fruit of his ministry, 2,000 years on, non-Jewish Gentile Christians. What would he want for us? Well, this is not just, you know, going back in time, um, trying to find out through some strange and wonderful technology, um, like in Assassin's Creed, but that's another question. You guys know about Assassin's Creed? Yeah. Anyway, um, movie, game, later on. But um, we don't have to go back in time to do that because Paul tells us at the end of this passage what he would want for us. And it's in chapter 16, verse 25 to 27. So go to chapter 16. We didn't read this earlier. Let's have a look there. 1625, this is kind of his last words for the whole book. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith or literally the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, the key there is that phrase, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience of faith. Now, I'll tell you why that's important. Not just here, but for the whole letter. Because it's one of the first things he says way back in Romans chapter 1 when he starts the letter. So if you're a quick flipper, turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Romans 1, verse 5. Right at the beginning of his letter, he says, when he's talking about what his role is, why he's writing this letter, 1, verse 5, through Jesus we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith for his name's sake. Now, no, you don't have to be a genius to figure out if, if something's at the beginning, at the end of the letter, it's got to be important, Right? And that's exactly, it's like bookends. So the idea here of the obedience of faith for Gentiles is one of the key themes of this book. So what does obedience of faith mean? Well, the NIV, as you've got in front of you, will translate it as the obedience that comes from faith, which actually is one of its meanings, right? The obedience that comes from faith. But another meaning is the obedience that is faith. You got that? Right? Not just the obedience that comes from faith, but the obedience that is faith, or the act of faith that itself is the obedient thing. Now, I think Paul means both, and that's why it's probably better just to keep it as obedience of faith, because I think he means both. He wants Gentiles, that's us, to have the obedience of faith. So let's explore both meanings, the second one first. He wants us to have the obedience that is faith. All right, the obedience that is faith. That is, when we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is the obedience that God requires us. Faith is the obedience. Now, it's really important to remember at this point what it isn't. Because if faith is the obedience that God requires, Paul is saying it's not religion. It's not circumcision, becoming a Jew. It's not obeying all the laws of the Old Testament. That's not the obedience God requires, especially of Gentiles. He just wants faith. 
faith and faith alone is enough. Trusting in Jesus is enough. And hey, you know what? Let's do a bit of a recap. Isn't that like the argument of the first five chapters of Romans? Right, quick recap. Romans chapters 1 to 3. His big point there is that no one is right before God. Not Jews, not Gentiles. No one. The whole world is sinful. And then in Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5, he says God now provides a new way through Jesus. Jesus does it all. So you trust in Jesus. You have faith in Jesus and it's enough because he was the perfect, obedient Jewish person, the perfect, obedient Adam. So that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfectly obedient because he's done it for you. You just need to trust him. And that's all that God requires. Faith is the obedience that God requires, not the law, not becoming a Jew. Not. So my first question is this. Have you... Put your faith in Jesus. It may be that you're not yet a Christian. You've been coming along and we always have people coming along who are not yet Christians. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you received Him? Because that is the obedience that God requires. Not by you earning it, not by you being a better person, not by you getting more religious, just trusting in Jesus. Have you done that? Because that's what Paul wants. It's what God wants. But the second one of the obedience of faith, remember, is that other meaning that's sort of in your new NIVs, the obedience that comes from faith. That is the obedience that springs naturally from a person who is saved by faith. Or the old saying goes, one of the reformers said, I can't remember which one, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In that, the faith that saves, genuine faith will always be naturally overflowing and accompanied by good works. And really, that's what Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are about, by way of recap. It's asking the question, now that you're saved by faith alone, what difference does that make to your life? And those chapters of Romans 6, 7, and 8 tells us that faith unites us to Jesus and gives us new life through the Holy Spirit who He gives us. And so we now have power to obey. God changes us from the inside out. And faith will show itself by good deeds. Obedience will spring up out of faith as we obey God joyfully and willingly in our lives by the power of the Spirit. Right? That's Romans 6, 7, and 8. So the second question is, how are you going with that? And that's probably the majority of you who are Christians. Are you having the obedience that springs from faith? Are you repenting of sins? Are you living in the light? Or in the last two weeks, we've been looking at what does it mean to live in love, in community with each other? Do you do that? Are you living in love? How are you going with that? All right, that's all by way of recap. The next point, though, I want to take us something further that this bit of Romans really introduces us to that I think we can really leave with and learn from. And that is Paul's ambition. Did you notice in these verses how he talks about his ambition in terms of his mission? So back to chapter 15, verse 20. 15, 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundations. All right, what does that mean for his plans? What does that mean and what does Rome have to do with that? Well, look at verse 23. Skip down to 23. He says, But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, 
And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Why Spain? Spain was seen as the edge of the Roman Empire, the edge of the known world. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a little while. Okay, this is, what he, this is why he's writing the letter. He wants to write a letter also partly to prepare them for his coming on his way to the edge of the empire. Why does he want to go to the edge of the empire? Because no one's been there. Because he's ambitious. Because he wants to reach all the way to Spain with the gospel. And this is the ancient world, all right? No trains, no planes, no automobiles, not even any bicycles, poor man. All right? He's going to get there. That's his ambition. Now, what does that show you? It shows you that ambition is not bad in and of itself, right? Ambition and, and passion and zeal and big plans, big visions, if it's for God, is good. Some people here, may not be a lot of us, but some people here, God has wired you to be the dreamer, the visionary, the ambitious kind of person. And you don't just see it in terms of your Christian life. You probably see it in all areas of life. Whatever you put your hands to, you're always asking the question, how can I make this bigger? How can it have more reach? How can it grow? How can it develop? Now, my question to you, if that's you, is, are you willing to let God take your ambitious nature and put it to the things that really matter? Not ultimately your career. Getting that promotion. Right? Refurbishing your house to that beautiful standard. The sporting achievement you want to achieve. Your children's successes. I mean, their ambitions in and of themselves, nothing bad about them. But are you willing for God to take your ambitious nature and use it for building His kingdom? And you can certainly do that if you... For some of you, becoming, um, giving up your work, becoming full-time pastors, missionaries, church planters. But you can also certainly do that as a layperson with your current jobs. Right? Letting God take your ambitions and really launching it for Him. It will involve risk. It will involve sacrifice. But will you be ambitious for Him? Now, having said that, though, you'll realize, most of you realize, that's just not me. Because the majority of us, that's not how we're wired, all right? You're, we're content with the immediate, the present. We're not the am ambitious and entrepreneurial types. Now, if that's you, then you might be thinking, well, how, how does this apply to me? I'm not the, am I not being obedient by not being ambitious in this way? Well, my answer is, of course, no. And I'll show you why. Because in verse 20, that word ambition Guess what? It's only used two other times in the New Testament, and all by Paul. So let's have a look at the two other references, and I've got it for you on the overhead. Can we go to slide number one? Can we? Yep, got it. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul says, so we make it our goal, same word there, our ambition, to please Him. Who's Him? Right, the Lord Jesus. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. That's the other use and the last use is in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Well, that's surprising. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anyone. Now, see what the first passage is saying. All Christians should have as a goal or an ambition for one thing, 
and that is to please the Lord Jesus. Right? Make it your ambition to please Him. But notice, for different people, that'll look different. Right? For the Apostle Paul, he's been called to pioneering gospel work, church planting, evangelizing, being a missionary. That's what it means for him. And that's what it means for probably a minority, but some included in that category, maybe even here today. But you see what the second passage tells us. What does ambition to please the Lord look like if you're the majority, if you're the ordinary Christian? Well, it's to lead a quiet life. I wouldn't have thought of that as ambition, but yeah, it's to lead a quiet life. In other words, to work, to hold down a job, to be employed, earn a living, right? To be self-sufficient so you're not dependent on other people, to win the respect of outsiders by your hard work. Be ambitious about that because that pleases the Lord. You see what I'm saying now? If I could summarize, it's this. What does obedient ambition look like? It's this. To be ambitious, to be as faithful as you can to fulfill God's calling and opportunities that He gives you. It's going to be different for different people. But we are to be ambitious to please God by being faithful to fulfill the calling and opportunities, the gifts and talents and resources of God that's given you where you are at. So not all will become missionaries and church planters and pioneer evangelists. But we're all to be ambitious to please God what, where He's put us by being faithful with what He's given us. And you see this actually in Romans 16. Just open Romans 16 with me. We're not going to read it all because it's that kind of chapter where there's all our greetings. He's trying to say hi to everyone. And there's a lot of funny names that I can't pronounce, so we're not going to bother reading it. But they're actually important verses. Because if you read through those verses, Paul calls so many of them co-workers. Paul, the pioneer apostle missionary, is willing to call them co-workers, partners. But do you know what they do? Let me just skim through a few with you. In chapter 16, verse 2, Phoebe, she's a benefactor. She's probably a patron, which means she's probably wealthy. And she uses her money to help the gospel ministry by being a patron for others to do it. In, in verses 4 and 5, we meet Aquila and Priscilla. They host a house church. They open up their home. In verse 6 and in verse 12, there are a bunch of women who are mentioned. And it says that they worked hard, probably in caring for people, in offering hospitality, cooking, support ministries, working hard. And then in verse 13, a guy called Rufus, great name, huh? Rufus' mom, who was like a mother to Paul and a mother to others. Do you see what I mean? They all played different roles. They were all obediently ambitious to please God. In other words, like the body of Christ we saw in Romans chapter 12, remember that? We all have different parts to play. So I think God is urging us all, if you're a Christian, make it your ambition to fulfill those callings and opportunities and gifts as faithfully as you can. If you're a student, if you're a worker, even if you're currently unemployed, if you're a parent, if you're a child, whatever it is, wherever you are, if you're retired, you're single or married, Right? With your wealth, with your time, with your energy. If you have a home, with your home, with your talents, with your hospitality. Whatever it is that God's given you. Ambitiously aim to please Him and faithfully use all of that. 
Not all of us are going to be frontline pioneering evangelists, but you know what all of us can do? All of us can be inviters, can't we? Do you know a non-Christian? You can invite them. You can invite them next week and the two weeks after that. Someone else is going to do the hard work of preaching the gospel, calling them to repent. Have you thought about inviting them? Have you thought about things like the ESL ministry that we've just heard about? I can do that. My English is okay. I, I speak good. Um, if you didn't pick up on that, then you may not be able to teach. Um, no, you probably can. Cause, yeah. Anyway, ESL, um, integrate ministries, come and make friends. I mean, come on, that's easy. I can make friends. Um, teaching scripture I mentioned a while ago. Um, mercy ministries. I'm baking some cakes and slices for next... I mean, some of you are great at that, right? That's what I mean. Make the most of every single one of those opportunities and gifts for God. Be ambitious about how you're going to use them to serve God, use them to serve others, rather than just serving yourself, yeah? So I think that's what godly ambition looks like for, for all of us. But another point is this. While as individuals, we're not all called to be ambitious like Paul in pioneering gospel work. Do you know what? Corporately, as a church, I think we are. And that's why in chapter 15, verse 30, he calls them to prayer. Did you notice that verse? He says, prayer, you guys, you Roman Christians, join with me in my struggle, right? His struggle as an apostle, as a pioneer, but you join with me. Look at verse 30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Prayer is that wonderful link between our ambitions and His ambitions. So while you may not be a pastor or a planter or an evangelist or a missionary, do you pray? Do you commit to prayer for them and for your church? Right? Because when you're partnering in prayer, you're partnering in a greater calling and ambition that you yourselves may not do, but you're very key in that. And so if you're a partner in this church, then yes, by praying. But also being a partner of our church, Southwest CCC, means you're a partner in our corporate ambitions. And let me tell you, if you didn't know already, for us at this church, all three congregations, two here and one in Bankstown, our ambition is to keep on planting gospel communities, congregations and churches, where churches are most needed in multicultural migrant southwest Sydney. That's our ambition. The Bankstown plant a year and a half ago will, God willing, not be our final plant, but the first one. Right? You may not be the planter, but if you're a partner of our church, you take part in that ambition. And this ambition, it's costly. It's much easier for us just to keep growing where we are and just be comfortable with that. It involves sacrifice, hard decisions. But will you be ambitious with us? First thing is, if you're not yet a church partner or a member, what we call partner, then become one. Because if you're a partner, then you really get to take part directly in the decisions that are made. Now, if you are a partner, and that's a lot of you, serve with all your hearts where God has called you to serve. It doesn't matter which way that is in church whether it's teaching in a CG or at the sound desk or helping with church lunch or teaching kids, you are part of a corporate ambition when you do that. You're part of something greater. But the other thing I want to challenge you with is, when there is a need, will you boldly offer yourself? Even if you think, oh, I've never, I've never taught ESL before. I've never taught kids before. 
What do I know about church planting? But you know what? When it comes to the call for us to gather the next core group, like we did at Bankstown a few years ago, to start a new congregation, reaching a new un- unreached group of people, you might be thinking, you know what? I can do that. Out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to do that. Will you be that person? Because you're all part of our church's corporate ambition. You see? Let me conclude. After Paul wrote, wrote Romans, uh, as he said he would do, he went to Jerusalem. Uh, he had with him the collection for the poor Jewish Christians suffering from famine, and he collected them among the Gentile churches. That all went well, except in Jerusalem, he got arrested. His plans to go to Rome and Spain are, understandably, aborted. After being arrested, he gets thrown in before the courts in a couple of very dodgy trials, and he waits two years, in fact, under arrest in Caesarea, right? Finally, after two years, he appeals to Caesar. Because he's a Roman citizen, he can appeal to Caesar to be, have his case heard by Caesar, or at least Caesar's close um, um, judges. So they do send him to Rome. So he gets to Rome, but he's now going as a prisoner. Now, if you read the chapters of Acts, chapters 21 to 28, you'll realize he gets to Rome. Along the way, he has this really exciting shipwreck on the island of Malta, where he gets bitten by a poisonous snake but doesn't die. Read about it yourself. It's great. Um, okay, he does get to Rome, but he's a prisoner. Now, from what we know of history, that's the end of Acts. But from what we know is he's at least in Rome for a couple of years. But then we have this big blank, his, big, big blank period where we actually don't know what happens to Paul. We don't know if he gets released, though he probably did get released. But we don't know where he went after that. And we don't know when he got released. And we actually don't know if he did make it to Spain. This is one of those possible but uncertain things in history. But the next we hear of Paul is that he's back in prison. But this time is not house arrest, right? Kind of low minimum security. No, now he's in probably the dungeons and probably he's back in Rome. But he's actually about to die. He's waiting for his execution and he's writing his last words. And we know from historical sources, sometime around 68 AD, during the reign of Emperor Nero, Paul was beheaded. And that's the end for our ambitious apostle. Now, for some, that might be pretty tragic, you know, comes to that sort of an end. But if you read his last known words, you'll find that he himself didn't see it as that. Let me show you from 2 Timothy. Look at his last words. These are really famous words. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He knows he's going to die. But look at this. I love these words, don't you? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Was his a wasted life? No. Because he fulfilled his calling, didn't he? Apostle to the Gentiles. And he did it to his last minute on earth. And so his death is absolutely not a tragedy. So what would be the tragedy for us? Well, let me use the words of 
quite famous, you've probably heard this before, what John Piper wrote, and I'll end with this. What is the tragedy? I'll tell you what it is. Piper writes, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998 of the Reader's Digest, which tells of a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59, she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. At first, Piper writes, when I read it, I thought this must be a joke. Making fun on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over and against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. Father, in light of what we've read and seen about Paul and his ambitions and how that challenges us, Lord God, help us not to waste our lives, but to spend it all for your glory, every single minute, every single drop of it, and be ambitious about that. Amen. Uh, We've been reminded this morning through the Apostle Paul and his unique mission that we as Gentile believers are to